Driving his minibus through Freetown, Sierra Leone, John Nile Kamara seems much more relaxed. As he goes by a nearly empty hospital, it's hard to believe that this modern-looking hospital on the coast of Sierra Leone was packed with Ebola patients just two years ago. I start to wonder, maybe this is the end of the world. Maybe everybody is going to die. We felt that our whole country is going to be destroyed. We didn't know how many people would die. How did the Ebola outbreak get so bad? And what can we learn from it? Welcome to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies that help to examine how global trends are impacting real lives and international relations. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by Balthazar Marin and Jeff Keating. Balthazar is a perspective politics major and a researcher at the Global Enquirer. And Jeff is our uh, producer turned researcher for today's episode and a biomedical engineering student here at UVA. Uh, Balthazar, Jeff, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. No problem. Thanks for letting me in the studio. So today we're going to discuss the Ebola outbreak and response to look at, broadly speaking, the role of global health governance and the role of international cooperation with sovereign governments and international organizations themselves within the public health context. Balthazar, I want to jump to you first. Can you talk about some of the context to the Ebola crisis here? Uh, so Ebola is a extremely deadly virus, and it first uh, presents symptoms similar to the flu, uh, high fevers, you know, sickness, and then it kind of mutates into a very nasty sickness. Um, Lots of internal hemorrhaging, blood spilling from all orifices, uh, and has an extremely high rate of mortality. And in 2013, uh, the first case of Ebola that had been seen in a few decades uh, cropped up in sub-Saharan Africa um, and started an epidemic and really just spread throughout the region. By the end of the epidemic, it had caused over 11,000 deaths and and really called for the international community to re-examine the ways uh, we deal with these global epidemics. So how did it really get this bad? Like, what were the main causes here to the crisis? Well, it really was a perfect storm of the worst possible factors coming into play. You have really impoverished nations who don't have great infrastructure and are, you know, are not even ready to deal with their day-to-day medical services. And then you had, a, on top of that, a global health system that had no real direction. All right, so let's break down these two two main causes here. First, you talked about the lack of infrastructure that is available in countries like Guinea and Sierra Leone. Can you talk about that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so like I said, these countries were in no way prepared to deal with a global epidemic, uh, let alone their day-to-day medical services. In Sierra Leone, for example, there's one doctor for every 100,000 people, so we're not starting at a great point. Um, and often the poor medical services that existed uh, have been pointed to as one of the main catalysts that allowed this epidemic to spread so far. And so then from the government's perspective, you know, if, there only, if there's only one doctor per 100,000 people in these countries, what did the government try to do to stem this epidemic? Well, the government uh, and the world at large, uh, for that matter, were caught a little flat-footed. Ebola has cropped up a few times in the past decades. Um, but it was dealt with relatively quickly. WHO was able to, the World Health Organization was able to send out 
uh, five representatives at max, quarantine it, and eradicate it. But in this case, it really was an anomalous event, and Ebola just spread like wildfire throughout these regions. The Afro-nations actually did petition the WHO to declare it a a global health crisis. In one of the largest oversights uh, in global health governance, the WHO rejected this uh, proposal on the grounds that it would damage relations and would cause a political firestorm. And you know, we see this type of response time and time again. Look at the way we go about declaring genocides. It's usually in retrospect because it does create a um, obligation for member states to act. And a lot of these, a lot of times, these member states are unwilling. So there was a good deal of politics at play here. And looking further into some of the factors that uh, played into the World Health Organization initially deciding not to declare this a public health emergency begins really with the way they're set up to work in foreign countries. So the way it works is the World Health Organization has regional offices, one for pretty much each continent, and then each of those offices assigns people to uh, different groups of countries or countries as attaches to those ministries of health. Now, specifically in the African region and West Africa in general, a lot of these uh, placements are patronage positions to appease governments. And essentially, they give them people who aren't going to do that much work or the people that they put there aren't going to have the resources they need to actually effectively help those countries govern um, themselves in terms of public health. And so that leads to a situation where when these outbreaks do pop up, there's no real good way for uh, the WHO to learn about them and have the resources to actually see the size and potential harm of these uh, outbreaks. And then the other thing that kind of factors into this is the way they're organized. The people who track the outbreaks are not actually directly connected to the uh, World Health Organization's like emergency response arm, which is in charge of actually bringing all the resources of an international organization to bear. So when ultimately the people on the ground do realize that there's actually something serious at hand, it took an extremely long uh, time for the people who could actually provide the care and resources needed to treat the outbreak from actually hearing about it. And just to kind of go to show something, you know, how, how bad it was, uh, MSF, or Doctors Without Borders in English, uh, had doctors on the ground trying to treat Ebola uh, well before the WHO declared a public health emergency. And uh, MSF actually requested from the U.S. government military aid and intervention to provide the resources necessary to actually combat the epidemic. And when the U.S. went to the World Health Organization, they hadn't heard anything about it and uh, ended up rejecting the U.S.'s proposal because it seemed like it wasn't serious and that ultimately the U.S. going into a sovereign nation was a much bigger issue. And getting getting back to the WHO, though, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that there was, you know, some degree of complete irresponsibility here. And a lot of that stemmed from sort of like a lack of cooperation between not only the UN and their agencies, but also other international organizations in the region. Yeah, actually, a few years ago, I had the pleasure of talking with Amaya Gillespie, who was implanted in uh, sub-Saharan Africa at the time of the epidemic. 
She was working under the UNMIR, which was the United Nations uh, mission for Ebola emergency response. She was the head of the community engagement pillar in Sierra Leone, and she kind of clued me in into how the whole system was constructed or um or should I say thrown together, because it really was a hodgepodge effort. Um, You had an alphabet soup of organizations all trying to coordinate, but ultimately stepping on each other's toes. You had the CDC, the UNDP, the WHO, NIH. You had military representatives from Great Britain and the United States. And what we were able to kind of surmise from all of this is that there was no real structure for coordination and cooperation. And it really exacerbated the circumstances in sub-Saharan Africa. And just to highlight that, the way the United States actually initially found out about the Ebola outbreak was from MSF, or Doctors Without Borders in English, um, which is a nonprofit organization that sends doctors into regions of the world to help with health. And MSF went to the United States after seeing the the stage of Ebola on the ground and was requesting military intervention to actually be able to combat the epidemic. When the U.S. went to the World Health Organization to request the ability to actually go in to uh, West Africa under the guise of public health, WHO said no because they thought it wasn't really a serious um, outbreak and that the U.S. didn't need to go and violate other states' sovereignty Um, to help prevent it. And so you can see there just the detachment and the disparity between all the different uh, organizations that were involved in treating this outbreak, where one may be asking for something, but another doesn't think that's important. And it really just highlights the, the failure, essentially, on behalf of global organizations to respond to these major epidemics. But surely the WHO had some sort of framework to deal with these epidemics in the past. Can we talk about some some of the precedent that had been set previously and how maybe Ebola challenged this precedent or led to a complete change in structure? Well, this is like I said before, uh, an anomalous event. So it did catch a lot of the international community off guard. But that being said, the WHO did kind of flub their handling of the Ebola crisis. Um, The measures that they did have in place did not hold um, and could not stand the test of the Ebola crisis. But, you know, as early as the 60s, reforms were uh, submitted to the WHO. It was suggested that they step back from their arm's length approach, which had them um, only enter into countries and offer assistance and aid once a sovereign nation officially requested it to a more hands-on effort. But the implementation of these reforms were at a snail's pace. Even in 2011, another batch of reforms was suggested to the WHO after their poor handling of the um, swine flu epidemic in the United States. And Slowly, these reforms were entered, but by the time Ebola actually started to wreak havoc in sub-Saharan Africa, not all of them had been implemented, and it is considered a major fault of the WHO. There were measures in place that probably could have saved some lives, but you know, a lot of politics do go into these decisions, and ultimately, this is the result. 
Yeah, like you said, even though the epidemic was a complete anomaly in the region, it is worth noting that the WHO is completely irresponsible in their actions not to declare this a public health emergency when the evidence was clear from not only like Doctors Without Borders but other organizations in the region. So then after the WHO finally declared this a public health emergency, what were some of the measures that were taken to prevent the outbreak from further spreading? Well, the situation on the ground was extremely complicated. Um, There were a lot of social factors at play. The population, specifically in the rural regions, have a religion steeped in tradition and superstition. So when these aid workers did come in, they had a lot of work to do um, with building these connections to the community. One way these challenges manifested themselves were in convincing the people to change their burial techniques. So in a lot of these places, uh, traditionally, when someone dies, there is an open viewing of the bodies in the family household, and friends and family from across the village come in to view the body, pay their respects. But from a medical standpoint, this was disastrous. Um, A dead body is extremely potent and and is considered the most contagious stage of Ebola. So it was about forming those bonds and trying to convince the locals that we need to change our ways if we are to stop this disease. I mean, and convincing these locals was was pretty difficult. You know, I, I did some research and was watching some documentaries about aid workers coming in, and you'd see them coming in in, you know, big hazmat suits and pulling the people with Ebola out of these communities, dragging them into trucks, and taking them away. So you can kind of imagine how, if there was a certain level of distrust towards the government, these these measures would only further perpetuate the grievances between the government and local communities. Exactly. And like I said, the superstition uh, was extremely high. So a lot of these times, a lot of the times uh, the population actually thought the government workers, the aid workers and um, specifically military men coming in were actually spreading the disease uh, and doing nothing to help. So, you know, it really became about building that social capital between the people and the aid workers. And they were able to find some inventive ways to do this. So, Belazar, I mean, in other episodes, we've talked about the detrimental effects of a top-down level of development. And it it seems like in this case, you know, these communities could have just been pushing back towards another form of top-down development uh, in the context of public health here. It further, like, begs the question, how do you convince the people that this top-down development is, like, worth their health, worth their time? Right. So we've talked a lot about um, top-down development. If you guys haven't already, I would suggest going checking out episode nine, Barren Promises. We talked a lot about this. It's a really interesting stuff. And we see it kind of materialize once again. Uh, this is a perfect example of you know Western nations coming in and trying to implement a top-down system. And they found it really didn't work. And they actually had to pivot and adjust to the situation and the context that surrounded it. So at first there was a lot of door-to-door knocking, going around, trying to talk to the locals. But once they found that there was this deep distrust, um, they had to shift tactics and they started to employ a lot more locals. Uh, they mobilized a huge force of um, you know, people native to the region and who were actually embedded in the communi- communities. 
Uh, they equipped them with prepaid mobile phones and created this little network. And they really started to see the benefit of you know this approach when they worked with the people, not you know just for the people. And you see this also present in the way they ended up building actual treatment to the response. So while you know, large nation, nations such as the U.S. had to come in and actually build the hospitals. The, you know, the U.S. military would literally fly in an entire field hospitals and build them. The, ultimately, what was most successful is when they got local workers or other organizations to send in doctors uh, to actually run these hospitals. And one of the biggest success stories is when they actually managed to get an entire hospital that is, was essentially being run by locals. So that way, there's no actual boots on the ground providing the care from the military. They were only the ones building the infrastructure, and it was the local economies and people that were actually holding it up. And so from the outset of the podcast, we talked about the broader issues in global health governance. What were some of the solutions that the WHO implemented from an organizational or structural standpoint that helped uh, prevent the epidemic from further spreading? So this gets into kind of the later stages of the outbreak. And one of the key things that allowed them to actually get enough people over there to provide aid, so MSF pretty early on was running into issues where they weren't able to get enough health workers to uh, go either teach locals how to provide care or to provide care themselves. And what they learned was they needed to have stipulations in place and methods to actually treat the local health workers. And so once they were actually able to uh, develop a solution to treat the workers, it drastically changed the willingness of doctors to come from abroad and come help out with the epidemic. And then they also managed to, as Balthazar mentioned, employ a whole bunch of almost social science strategies to improve the response of communities to these outbreaks. So there's more to a health outbreak than merely providing doctors and a, you know, and a medical solution, but it's also getting the communities on board, as Balthazar mentioned, and using those social science techniques to do so is critically important. And then finally, the last thing they really managed to do is get on one page about how they were going to perform research. So at the outset of the epidemic um, or the emergency, there were a couple different trains of thought as to how to do research with regards to public health crises. So on one hand, you had some of the major research organizations in the U.S., such as the NIH, advocating for ensuring that you have uh, properly run trials, that is to say, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled. And on the other hand, you have other you know, NGOs saying that they want to essentially give the vaccine to every single person, as many as they can, to try and treat it. And ultimately, what came out of this after the end of the epidemic was a good look at what methods we used to perform research. And it was ultimately decided, and this is what is currently being used with Zika, um, that you're going to perform a properly controlled trial. And while you are giving the vaccine to some patients, you're ensuring that the vaccine is both safe and effective for those patients because it's of no use to anyone if you're providing them with a vaccine that doesn't actually do what it's supposed to do. And beyond these different research solutions that were kind of generated from the Ebola crisis, uh, what else has changed as far as how these international organizations respond to public health emergencies? Sure. So to talk about this, we'll actually come a little bit more present. So first, just discussing Zika, which popped up in the last couple of years in South America, we see a drastically different response than that to Ebola. 
initially off the bat, there was fantastic communication between PAHO, which is the Pan American Health Organization, uh, WHO's American arm, if you will, so the Western Hemisphere. And they had extremely good communications with both the CDC in the U.S. and other organizations through their health attaches, which were able to communicate the needs of Brazil and other South uh, American countries and ensure that they got what resources they need. So, for instance, it was not actual AIDS or, hos- or hospital uh, hospitals that Brazil needed to treat this epidemic. They had a fairly decent health infrastructure initially. It was more that they needed experts from the United States and the UK and other major uh, countries to come in and try and figure out what was causing it, try to figure out how to address it. And so by being able to effectively communicate something that was extremely absent during Ebola, they managed to very quickly um, help prevent the spread there. And then the other thing they were able to do is um, during, in terms of the research arm of Ebola, uh, of Zika, because it falls into the similar category of Ebola where we didn't have anything to treat it, um, they set up a whole bunch of networks of uh, centers where they would register or enroll pregnant mothers or babies affected by Ebola so that way they could not only track it, but also when these vaccines were being created, they have a network right initially that they don't have to go then and try and find people to try these vaccines on. They have a vaccine trials network immediately set up. And then the last case I'm going to look at is extremely current. In the last couple months, um, a outbreak of the bubonic plague, which I'm sure you've heard of from the uh, major outbreak in Europe in the 1300s. In Madagascar, they've had a pretty severe outbreak of it with uh, more than 1,800 suspected cases of it and over 100 deaths. And the World Health Organization has made great strides in the way they responded to this. So in addition to just being able to provide direct aid, uh, the WHO did provide 1.2 million doses of antibiotics, which uh, help us treat the bubonic plague these days. In addition to that, they also provided a risk assessment. So using their regional office, they did a risk assessment to see how likely it was that this plague was going to spread. And when they discovered that it was extremely likely to spread to some of the neighboring countries, especially Ethiopia and Kenya, they reached out to those countries to help them come up with a system to treat any cases or prevent the spread of cases should it come to their shores. And then also what they did within Madagascar is work with the government to not only publicly visibly show that uh, actions were being taken, but also to directly influence the spread of it in airports initially, and then they're spreading it throughout the country. They are improving their exit screening, so that way they could tell whether or not people have the disease, and then that way they can prevent its spread. And then they're also uh, increasing the regional preparedness all over um, Southeast Africa, so that way should this outbreak become worse, rather than having to build up from the ground, as they did in West Africa with Ebola, there's already resources and uh, infrastructure in place to deal with the crises. So you can see, while it may not be perfect yet, the World Health Organization has had major takeaways from the, quite frankly, failure of a response that was uh, the Ebola crisis, and in the last couple years has made some major strides that have prevented 
significantly worse spreading of other diseases. And this is super important because there are several other diseases that are poised to become epidemics in many other nations across the world. And it's extremely likely in the coming years that these processes that the World Health Organization has created in uh, conjunction with other nations and other organizations are going to come to bear in you know what could be the next major uh, epidemic flu or any other number of diseases that are posing a threat to the world. Yeah, I mean, we normally end our episodes pretty bleak, but um, it seems like there's a little bit more optimism out of the uh, WHO's response in recent years, which is a good sign. And that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Balthazar and Jeff for coming on and Jeff for getting out of his uh, normal producer studio role. While you're at it, you can like us on uh, Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us, and give us a rating. That really helps us out and allows us to reach a broader audience. If you missed any of our old episodes, you can check them out on our new website, www.globalinquire.org. And we'll see you next time.